Um, uh, yesterday I had a meeting with um, one of the, the people who's the president of the, of the Regional Medical Staff Association here in, in Edmonton. And what I got out of that meeting was that, that the doctors think there's about five doctors in, in <laughs> Alberta who are really pushing for this. You've got the ophthalmologists, you've got a few orthopedic surgeons, you've got, uh, you know, one person, uh, cardi a cardiovascular surgeon that's a good friend of Ralph Klein's, and you got the Wong brothers in, in Calgary, and that's it. Um, because for the vast majority of people, um, I mean, if, if you think about it, when this thing shakes down, if Klein does go ahead, when it shakes down, there's not going to be doctor-run clinics. You're going to have monopolies taking over. And a lot of them are actually quite aware of the fact that far from choice, they're going to have HMOs. Right. And, and we, should, we should mention they, what those are. They feel about the HMO, which is, you know, the... the what does HMO stand for? Health Managed Organization. Right. And that's going to tell you what you can do and what you can't do and what you can prescribe and what you can't prescribe. And uh, just to illuminate this a bit for not to interrupt, but yeah. just illuminate, HMOs are, are uniquely uh, almost an American phenomena in the sense that employers set up their own HMOs where they contract with specific doctors. So if you're an employee of a company, you are obliged to go to this doctor. Now, if the doctor says that you're okay, you're okay, according to the company. Yeah. So you cannot get a second opinion that they will validate in terms of your HMO to respond in terms of health insurance. See, I, I mean, a lot of doctors are not, they're not stupid about this. And I think they see the HMO the way the Saskatchewan doctors saw public health care. That, that, I mean, their experience with public health care is that they're not dictated to in that way, but they will be under a private system. Now, let me add one, so, one so, other thing. There, mm -hmm. There's an HMO model, which I became familiar with, in northern Ontario, which has a chronic problem of keeping any kind of physicians, let alone a GP, in the area. And what they did in an area, if you, look at, if you think of the Great Lakes, you know that Lake Superior is the biggest lake. And it, if you think about that section that goes north from Sault Ste. Marie, keep driving, keep driving, keep driving, keep driving, keep driving, and you get to Wawa. Now, in that area, they had a chronic problem of keeping even a, a local physician. So what they did was they contracted with doctors in a kind of a quasi-HMO, which the province of Ontario is trotting out as the model. Does it work in a region like Wawa? Probably, uh, because it contracts with doctors to say that you must stay with this contract for five years in an area that nobody really wants to stay in. But to extend that particular model into Edmonton or Toronto, I don't know. Peggy Morton? Um, well, I mean, it, here's, a, here's an example that I heard from a, a guy that the doctors brought to speak. If you phone your HMO and say, I've got chest pain, should I go to the hospital? Are you going to pay for it? Okay. Well, if you go to the hospital and it turns out that you're having a heart attack, they'll pay for your emergency visit. But if it turns out it was indigestion, they won't pay for That's it. Right. So, so what's going to happen to that patient without any money? They're going to say, I can't afford to take that chance of having that bill. I'll just stay home and wait a while. Um, so they're very aware, and, but never mind them. I mean, we should be very aware that that HMO model um, is 
a way. I mean, it's a way of denying people basic health care. Now, the other extreme of that is the University of Washington in Seattle, which I have some, I've given talks there, uh, has an extraordinarily one uh, run uh, HMO, which is, which is, could be a, a wonderful model. What I'm getting at is we're talking about the extremes of the conversation. Peggy, and, and please, everybody, let's just think about it. Is there a middle, I'm sorry, a third way that no. we could discuss this? No? Why not? Shannon, let Shannon go. Okay, Shannon, you go first. Hi, guys. Hi. Can any, anywhere, everyone hear me? Oh, yeah. The mic's Perfectly, yeah. Yep. It's fine, okay. Well, there's a couple of, of things that I think for, for students and uh, thinking about healthcare that are that are probably important from a policy perspective. The first is why we have Medicare and what it actually is as a system. When Tommy Douglas introduced Medicare, it was introduced as the medical insurance bill. It is a system of insurance, first and foremost, and that's why bringing in private health insurance is, so, is such a challenge to what we have now. Um, Basically what public health care is, is it puts us all in the same insurance pool, thereby minimizing the risk. If you put everyone in the same insurance pool, the healthy, the sick, the old, the young, the wealthy, the poor, you end up with, with far less risk when it comes time to pay out. And when you have a smaller insurance pool, it's going to cost you a lot more, A, if you have any of those so-called risks, being old, poor, um, or, uh, or fair, let's say sick, um, it's going to a lot, cost you a lot more because it costs the insurance company a lot more when it comes time to manage risk, what they are in business to do. So when we think about public health care, we need to think about, about what that means when we all get put in the same boat. It means from a, from a values perspective, the things that Michelle and Gordon and Peggy have talked about, it means that health does not become a commodity. It means that we have, it introduces a, a, a measure of equity. And when we all stay healthy, it, it introduces a measure of equity into the economy because then we can all participate in the economy and social life on a fairly level playing field. So it's not just equity in terms of access to the system, but it's also equity in terms of access to broader social life. The other thing that it does, though, from a policy perspective, is it minimizes costs. When you have one insurance company, effectively the public company, you end up with one layer of administrative costs. Mm -hmm. It is not a for-profit venture, therefore you don't end up with exorbitant CEO salaries. You don't end up in a situation where you have HMOs who sometimes each doctor has to employ two or three administrators to navigate the insurance system to basically spend a whole bunch of money on denying claims because that's what they're in the business of doing. You have litigation, malpractice, all kinds of other things, maybe inappropriate treatment, advertising, all of this extra layer of cost that gets put onto an insurance system that is not everyone in one boat. So that's kind of the public policy behind this. As a result, our insurance company, of which there was one, the public system, spends $90 billion a year on health care. In this province alone, we spend $9 billion. So there are lots of for-profit corporations that would like to get their hands on that money, and that's what's driving this, is to break up our effective insurance monopoly that we've decided democratically since the 1960s that we want. And so... 
when you look at that public policy model, it is flexible, and it is, in fact, innovative. And it did allow provinces to kind of make some of their own decisions about how they were going to implement Medicare. And I think that's really important to realize that this is a regionally diverse system, and it allowed provinces the decision-making power on how they were going to deliver the service. That was the sort of the great gift that Tommy gave us, was that he brought it in in Saskatchewan first, showed that it could work, and then Diefenbaker basically nationalized it, but allowed the provinces some flexibility on how they were going to deliver the thing. So if we're minimizing costs through the one public system, then you have to think critically about what Ralph and the Public Affairs Bureau, who drives his main message, have been saying for many, many years. Don't get me going on those guys. And they've been saying it since, and not just since the sort of deficit cutting, but even when Ralph was elected, he said health care costs are out of control, health care costs are out of control. But in fact, health care costs through the 1980s and the early 1990s stayed stable at $1,300 per capita per Albertan through the 1980s and the early 1990s. Since the cuts, what's happened is basically budgets were rolled back by about 20% and then lost a bit to inflation until about 1998 when they started to come back up. Since 2001, and that's since there was a dip in oil prices in about 2001, or 2000, but in around 2001 oil prices came back up, Alberta's economy was doing just fine. Since that time, for the past five years, health care spending as a percentage of the total budget has stayed the same at 34%. So this whole ridiculous notion that health care is going to swallow up the entire budget is based on raw numbers, not as a percentage of the budget. It's a distraction. It's an absolute distraction. There are other distractions. Health care as a percentage of total revenue, as our economy booms, has actually dropped since 2001 from 34 to 27% of revenue. So health care spending has stayed the same for the last five years, despite the fact that for the last five years drug costs have increased by 15%, on average 15% a year. So that means that other aspects of the health budget are in fact being somehow trimmed around the edges or other accommodations are being made so that big pharma can make big money. And if there is an innovation to be made, and if in fact costs should be saved, then it must be, at least preliminarily, on the level of drug costs. And in my view, the best way to do that is to take the model of New Zealand, where they've used their buying power, which is about the same as ours in terms of population, and basically leverage that buying power against big pharma and bulk bought. And they've also done reference-based pricing for substituting generics where possible and where appropriate. They've also then turned a lot of that savings around into education programs so that people take all of their antibiotics, so that maybe you don't need that new fancy drug that you saw on American television. And the other thing that they did was they've curtailed a lot of the drug advertising at the same time. Now, big pharma's not impressed, but who cares? The point is that they're keeping their drug costs within inflation, within 3% growth per year, whereas ours are, quite simply, if anything's out of control, it's drugs. The other big driver of 
of private health insurance. And in the third way proposal, they've indicated private health insurance for hips and knees and cataract surgeries. Now, the wait times in hips and knees, Peggy alluded to one of the reasons why the hips and knees, because they are an expensive procedure. But the other reason that the waits are long in those particular procedures in orthopedics is because those procedures get bumped for trauma cases, effectively. The orthopedic surgeon gets taken out of that setting, and the elective surgery for your hip or knee gets bumped for the car accident or the motorcycle crash. And so what, if you want innovation, yet another innovation that, in fact, they have done in Alberta for cataract eye surgeries is specialized clinics. And specialized clinics that just concentrate on hips and knees. And lo and behold, the wait times come down. And we've done it entirely within the public system. And that's an expenditure of approximately $50 million a year. This is a drop in the bucket when their bogus forecast for a surplus is $4 billion. We know it's going to be at least double that. Well, Shannon, a slight interrupt, because everything you're saying, everything that Shannon is saying, as I look to do, is correct. All right? So hence this question, right? They have those numbers, too. And you know that the history of the governance of this province is to do a huge distraction and then do what they're going to do. What do you think they're going to do? I think they're going to introduce private health insurance for certain procedures. First of all, like I said at the beginning, I think it would be really good for us to weigh in and look at this. They're not about to introduce an American-style system. I know that. You know that. But Ralph Klein is in a really embarrassing situation. And I want to go back to 2000. Now, lots of us, you know, we're on the steps of the legislature every night together in 2000. And we treated it as a defeat, you know, a victory for the movement that we generated so much enthusiasm and so many people coming out and really put that government on the defensive. But we treated it as a defeat that they put in Bill 11, that that legislation got through. The interesting thing about that legislation is, number one, they didn't need it because there wasn't anything stopping them from allowing that clinic in Calgary to do overnight stays, except the college. But it's a placeholder piece of legislation. But that legislation was actually at the time, and until the Ontario legislation, the most restrictive legislation in all of Canada in terms of private health care. Because you, Shannon, sorry, alluded to the fact that we're talking an insurance system. And the Canada Health Act really doesn't really prohibit private health care. It's a mechanism for payment. That's right. The laws are provincial laws. And if you look at the provincial laws across the country, it's quite amazing really what you can do. In Newfoundland, for example, a doctor can opt out, go into the private system, see you, and you can then send a bill to the government for his cost and get repaid. You see? So, I mean, it's a form of private insurance, which exists there. So here in Alberta, we have the most restrictive legislation that exists that says not in terms of this financial transaction between the province and the federal government, that if you have private, if you charge for an insured service, we won't pay you, which in fact they don't enforce. But in fact, in Alberta, the legislation says that you will be fined 
It's a criminal offense. So that's a huge embarrassment to Ralph Klein that we actually have less private health care in Alberta than you have in BC or Quebec. And so he wants to eliminate... See, I think that one of the things that we need to focus on as we develop this campaign is that Ralph's enemy is not the Canada Health Act. Ralph's enemy is that he made promises in 2000 to the people of Alberta that he wouldn't do certain things, and now he wants to eliminate what he put in there in 2000. So what he wants to do is get rid of the provisions in the Health Protection Act so that you can charge for a private service or that you can charge for an insured service. Then he wants to permit doctors to work in both systems and start in terms of a few procedures to allow the insurance companies and allow the market to develop. So if this happens, not much will change for a year or two, but all the conditions are going to develop for the disruption of the public system. I agree with you, as long as it's in stasis. And I really want to throw this out into the room because we've all done some thinking about this, but I'm not certain if we've had the luxury to add... Don, can I answer the one question that you have brought up that kind of... You were asked what other way except for these contracting HMOs that we could do to get doctors into these kind of isolated areas? Yeah, and that's the proof of concept, which is being trotted out right now, is in a jurisdiction north of Sault Ste. Marie in Wawa. And that took place seven years ago. Can I respond to that? You know what I would honestly like to see? And this expands health care to who is training these doctors and nurses to work in the health care field? And I believe, as the Alberta government as well, this is an issue. The tuition cost and the cost to become educated as a doctor has become so much. And we have... This is no secret where the Americans are brain-draining Canadian graduates in the health field, whether it's RNs or whether it's doctors and things like that. I would like to see implemented as another model for this HMO contracting in a public kind of way. If I can go up to a student and say, if you want your doctorate, I pay for it, except for you have to give me a reasonable amount of years of service in an isolated area. I mean, I'm not going to deny the impact of centralization of health care because, you know, it's glamorous to work in the cities and more. But, yeah, the isolated areas need some attending to. But, you know, there's lucrative and there's opportunity to keep not only our post-secondary institution, that public money going to pay these doctors through a public institution to train them, to put them into a public system up in an isolated area. Let's be reasonable. Like, you know, two to five years is not too much to ask. And, therefore, we can get these people out into these isolated areas instead of going this kind of like a private HMO kind of model. I'd like to jump in here. I'd like to talk a little bit about that, Michelle, because not only do I have the Northwest Territories experience behind me, but it's interesting. I have a little political tidbit for you. John Reel, the former leader of Alberta First Party, when he was running for the Alberta Liberal Party, it's too bad he didn't win. But when he was running for the Alberta Liberal Party, he suggested that very thing. 
and uh, I mean, there was some, there was some uh, apprehension about that, uh, you know, freedom of move, move, movement, things like that. <laughs> but um, but in, in the Northwest Territories, they, they were able to use a very, very unique system. That, and I think one that's, um, there's really two sides of the issue. One, uh, for one, they use a combination of primary care centers, uh, nursing centers, and other ways of sort of delivering more of your uh, more of your basic health needs, a cold, a fever, a flu, that sort of thing. We'd only see a doctor once a month. And generally, there's a very young doctor straight out of med medical school. And, uh, you know, there are some perks of living in the Northwest Territories besides being able to stand in one particular spot on a river and say, you know, I'm the only human being that's ever stood here ever. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, there's, there's a specific amount of retention dollars the Northwest Territories was able to generate, and they were able to, to recruit in, in that very matter in a public system. And, of course, it was always great for us uh, growing up because it would be these, these young, cool doctors straight out of medical school, and they'd always have interesting tales to tell of the city and that sort of thing. But, but uh, I, I don't know about the restricting your freedom of movement thing yeah. with the contractual yeah. sort of <clears throat> things. I, I like where you're going with uh, the free tuition. I'm sure a lot of the right. students here would agree. But <laughs> I think there are other areas we can look at in terms of saving costs. Uh, but I, I would like to talk to the United Nurses uh, people who are involved and the QB people here to see what they think of things like primary care centers, community clinics, mm -hmm. uh, sort of these alternative delivery models, right? So um, maybe I'll put that one out there. And, and the Northwest Territories model is, is an interesting one that, that barely gets uh, gets talked about, right? Oh, I think, it's a, I think it, the time oh, has come to consider uh, broadening the framework of this discussion a little bit. Uh, health issues, we can look at them in a provincial context in Alberta. We can look at them in a national context. We're touching upon a North American context, the idea that uh, the example of publicly insured health care in Canada might represent an example in the United States that some powerful interests, they don't like that example being there. Um, uh, they want to hold on to uh, the, 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 the deal they have. Um, and there's a global world out there, um, and of course there is a huge uh, percentage of the population of the earth that lack access to good health care. And here we are in what is becoming one of the richest jurisdictions in North America, if not in the world. I think um, we have to you know, remind ourselves that we're in the midst of a boom, and this boom is not like the previous ones. The, the magnitude of this, the scope of this boom is, is huge. And we're sitting in the center of a, a situation where there is a, uh, an amazing uh, liberation of financial resources that could do amazing things locally, nationally, internationally. And how can we, um, how can we deny looking out at the world and saying from this position, we are looking at a, a situation where healthcare is a global issue. Uh, when we look at SARS, for instance, uh, you know, we can see that uh, epidemics that health doesn't respect, uh, these, these diseases don't respect national boundaries. Uh, mad cow disease, I mean, that, uh, that has all kinds of local implications, national implications, international implications. Uh, so we need to, kind of hard to talk if that could be muted, I'd appreciate it. But uh, we need to look at the global context of this. I've been uh, doing some research. If we can go to the document camera. And uh, I've been looking at uh, Paul Fung's work, uh, uh, Pathologies of Power, Health, 
human rights and the new war on the poor. And I think that's inescapable, that concept that there is a, a war on the poor, that neoliberal economics, the idea that uh, the market is going to decide most things. And if you're a loser in the market, you're poor. And if you're poor, you're probably going to be unhealthy. You're probably not going to have access to good food. Uh, one of the consequences of being poor is you're probably going to have uh, health problems. So uh, how do we deal with this on a, on a global level? So Farmer is a, a doctor and an anthropologist. He's been working in Haiti. He's been working in Chiapas. He's been working in uh, the prisons in Russia where there's epidemics of tuberculosis. Uh, we have a Canadian, a great Canadian, um, Stephen Lewis, who is trying to draw the world's attention to the AIDS ep epidemic in Africa. Um, so how are we going to cope with, uh, with these issues? And, and, and when we talk about innovation, isn't it important that we innovate and we, we think, okay, we've created uh, a healthcare system that deals with the reality that we're not going to look at health and the, and the provision of medical services as a business, as simply a commodity to be bought and sold in the marketplace. And to deliver health care to the poor is always going to demand uh, some recognition that we got a responsibility as human beings beyond our role as consumers, as buyers and sellers in the marketplace. So the controversy, as I gather, is that is, is health care a human right? Is health care part of uh, these provisions in international instruments um, that refer to human rights. And the, the, the provision that uh, uh, comes up again and again is in the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Uh, this provision here is, is, is looked at again and again. Everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. And then Article 27 says, uh, um, everyone has the right to a share in scientific advancement and, and its benefits. So as he describes it, there's a kind of split in the constituency of professionals who uh, call themselves human rights experts. Uh, some want to focus on political and civil rights. Can people vote? Can people uh, assemble and, and carry on political activities? But he's saying that there's another aspect of human rights, which is social and economic. So by virtue of human is there is there uh, a, a human right to water to food is there a right to survive to have the basics of life that you need to survive professor Hollis aspect of, of human rights he believes has been neglected he wants to advance the concept of health care as a as a human right um, I'll, I'll, one of the leading theorists on uh, health 
healthcare in the world is uh, Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro, uh, the government of Cuba has excellent healthcare. The government of Cuba has, you know, created a situation where there's universal literacy and excellent health. Remember, uh, the government of Cuba offering the government of the United States a thousand doctors at the mm -hmm. time of Katrina. Do you remember how ill-prepared the government of the United States was to deal with Katrina? I mean, there was a classic example where you just can't say, well, let the private market take care of it. Let the private market take care of Katrina. According to uh, uh, Castro, from 1950 to 1997, the amount of money on the planet distributed, uh, going around annually went from $5 trillion to $29 trillion. In spite of this statistical expansion of wealth, uh, 33,000 children under five, almost all of them poor, die every day. And, and uh, Castro goes on to say, in no act of genocide, in no act of war, are so many people killed per minute, per hour, and per day as those who are killed by hunger and poverty on this planet. And uh, uh, I'll just read a, a fairly lengthy quote here and, and then uh, wrap this part up. But why in this world, which produces almost 30 trillion worth of goods and services per year, do 1,300,000,000 human beings live in absolute poverty, receiving less than a dollar a day, when there are those who receive more than a million dollars a day? Why do 800 million lack the most basic health services, when the cost of providing a minimal level of health care protection to all the citizens of the world, an amount estimated in 1998 dollars at 25 billion, amounts to just 3% of the amount devoted annually to armaments? Why are there 250 million children in the world forced to work? Why do 2 million girls become prostitutes every year? Why do 15% of the world's population consume 82% of the world's medicine, while the rest of the world have, have, only, have only access to 18%? So these are kind of stunning statistics and uh, point out uh, that we are really are dealing from a position of incredible privilege in, in, in this context. And as, as we consider uh, what to do about healthcare, as we consider innovation, how can we fail to consider what we do in this context will either facilitate us to in, intervene more creatively, more humanely, globally, or, or fail to do so and turn inward. And I don't think we can get away from the ideological aspect. It's not just a discussion about what is the pragmatic or efficient thing to do. It comes down to a philosophical decision about what kind of people are we? What kind of uh, uh, principles do, do we adhere to? Uh, how do we see our relationship to our fellow human beings? And uh, there's no doubt that our Medicare system does represent that there is a socialist heritage that has had an impact on the way our government is structured. And in this day and age, that socialist heritage is an affront, represents something abhorrent, and, uh, something unorthodox, something that, that needs to be rooted out. Uh, James, I think, has, has got a very clear line on how 
there seems to be a very concerted drive to, to use these changes to lead us into NAFTA, to allow the provisions in NAFTA which would uh, essentially entrench the privatization of the system. Um, that this is this is part of the plot, and of course it it, it happens here here in Alberta, but then it has national nationwide implications. I don't know if you. Yeah. Professor. Okay, Hall, I'll I'll leave it at that. Yeah, Professor I'll Hall. Give you back I, the. I don't know if you can hear me, Professor Hall. Hello, Tony. Yeah. Uh, to, look at there's there's something that comes up, and I think. You, you've skirted around this, um, and I'd just like to draw attention to this. And that is, what you've outlined is that we in Alberta, at this very moment in time, are in an extraordinary position to do one of two things, I suppose, and I'll, I'll throw this open, to either have governance of an existing public health care system and debate that or discuss it or do what you want with it, or show leadership at this point in time. By getting into the distractions of which, and I, I thank you for bringing those numbers, is that it's been a time-honored strategy for my examination of returning to Alberta of distracting yes. smart people with cognitive dissonance. Yes. That is effectively disinformation. Uh, disinformation from a huge public affairs bureau, 264 strong the last time I checked, more people have assigned it. This is uh, to basically engage the population in cognitive dissonance, creating us spinning our tail, where the real dialogue has yet to take place. So I would just want to draw back to, to this thing. I don't have an answer to this. And, and I, I really want to hear from people. I want to hear from Peggy. I want to hear from Shannon. I want to hear from you from your perspective in the Northwest Territories. I want to hear from Mr. Campbell. I want to hear from the room in Lethbridge. Because at this point, people who are in a position to discuss these things, Professor Hall, Peggy Morton, Don Hill, um, Mr. Campbell, um, really, uh, have I got this right? Are we talking about governance of the existing health care program? If, if, is this what this is all about? Or is this some kind of leadership that should be put into play in some way where we can assign leaders to discuss this or whatever? I, I hope I haven't made this too murky here. Peggy, you were sort of... Yeah, no, Don, I think you've really hit something important on the head here. Because, I mean, there's, there's always this huge disinformation campaign. It's and then everybody responds defensively. Yes. And it's really time. Like, Tony raised some really important mm. things here. I don't think that, that we should buy into privilege. Because one of the things about, it's not just whether you're poor. It's inequality mm. that gives rise to bad health. And it creates the conditions for war. Inequality, yes, and lack of control over your own environment. So why are we so defensive that we're going to talk about how we have to spend our money better in the healthcare system and so on, and, and we have to be more efficient and all this kind of garbage? I mean, anybody who's worked in the healthcare system, there's nowhere where you work harder, where you're more efficient, where you're more careful about the use of resources than the healthcare system. So we need to go on the offensive. Like, why not go on the offensive on this question of drugs? Mm -hmm. That we've got this really quite advanced research going on in Alberta in terms of medical research and you so bet. on, that we want to use it for the good of the world. Mm -hmm. that to show leadership. That, 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 right? look, that look what Cuba's doing. 
Look at how many doctors Fidel sends, or the Cuban people send, to, to Haiti. Look how many doctors they train. They train doctors, even, even from the poor communities in the United States. Those, those uh, people can go to Cuba and be trained to be a doctor, you know, from the minority communities in the United States, from all over Latin America. Why aren't we training doctors? We're taking doctors from the That's third right. world countries. We're not training them and sending them there to assist people. We're taking that, that social product from the third world countries because we don't want to spend the money training our own doctors. I mean, it's just, it's just obscene. But let me get you uh, on We've the got a question from the room here. So okay. he, wants to, he wants to get me on the record, and then we'll be done. Is it a leadership issue or a governance issue? Listen, it's a question of putting forward a whole new way, a whole new direction. So does that mean like. leadership? Yeah, it's, it's, it's time that we took the offensive and stopped trying to justify ourselves in Ralph Klein's terms. Let's start sketching out what we could be doing. So not, not oppose, propose. Yeah, first, first of all, we have to discuss that do we want a province which is virtually annexed? <laughs> Who are we selling it out to? Are these... Are these things in the interest of the world's people, of the people of Alberta, and so on? And then, to the extent that we use this wealth, let's use it for the people. Right. How come Venezuela, you can buy gasoline for one cent, and they're sending cheap gas to the United States, mm -hmm. and here people can't even heat their houses? Mr. Chavez has already answered that question, yeah. but I want to hear from the folks in Lethbridge. Hi. There's a student here watching. Yep. Hi there. And this is somewhat for Don, because he, he's been, oh, sorry. Name Ryan Humphrey, but question somewhat for Don, just because he's been so gleefully playing the devil's advocate mm. Sorry, this evening. Sorry, I got the black hat on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun position to take, but it's more whether privatization is sort of a viable strategy to be looking at. I'm just curious if anybody has any good examples where a major public service has been taken, privatized, and there has been a reasonable increase in service or savings. I have an example of that immediately, uh, uh, is, is, and I'm going to do something here that's going to require a 30-second rant. Uh, at the beginning, George I, meaning George Bush uh, I, uh, declared at the beginning of the 1990s the decade of the brain, which doesn't mean that we're all just going to get smarter. What he endowed uh, through National Institutes of Health in the United States is the opportunity for technical people to provide the health industry the kinds of things that we've come to take for granted in our public health system, which is derived from an enlightened position of governance in the United States and leadership to say is, we need these things called functional magnetic resonance imaging machines, which cost an enormous amount of money, and we're going to buy 8 million of them or something like that. And then the cost came down, and next thing you know, universities have them all over the place, CAT scanners and all this kind of stuff. So it was kind of like a declaration that Truman and Eisenhower did after the Second World War that we, we need an interstate system. The government will start to get this thing into play, and you guys in the private sector will provide us with this. So I think there's been benefit uh, there in that regard uh, in terms of providing tools to uh, public health care systems wherever they are in the world, much the same way as Boeing provides airplanes around the world. And they started with a lot of government grants as well, too, but it's, it's a public, it's a private business, uh, so to speak. So that's one example. Uh, you, you said you had others back Yeah, here? I've got a bunch. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I've done some research on uh, um, introducing privatization in different uh, countries, and along the same lines as what Alberta 
is proposing because it's quite a different thing to talk about a two-tier system in um, Sweden, for example, mm -hmm. where they do not allow doctors to go back and forth between the, the private and the public system, and systems where they do, which is what the um, which is what the conservative government is proposing in their in their health policy framework. Now, in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher introduced this and also some private sort of insurance for things like, you guessed it, eye cataracts, hips, and knees. The results were that um, regions with higher levels of private health insurance have longer waiting lists in England, and that's controlling for demographic characteristics such as age, population, size, mm -hmm. and household income. And I can send uh, or give the class all of these footnotes at a later time. Um, I can give them to Andy, actually, Andy Davies. Um, but uh, the New Zealand Medical Council, who uh, introduced queue jumping and private pay um, for some procedures, including eye cataracts, reported that specialists who um, were allowed to go back between both back and forth between both systems spent just 48% of their time working in public hospital hospitals. Most of the rest of the time was devoted to their private practices. In 2004, the, a, an OECD report showed that waiting lists in the UK and New Zealand were three, were respectively three and five times longer than the waiting lists reported um, by the Fraser Institute in Canada. The most recent data from Australia, where they also have the ability to have doctors in both systems and private health insurance, confirmed the findings of previous studies that suggest increased private sector activity is associated with increased public sector waiting times, the reverse of the rhetoric that, they, that brought in the private health insurance in the first place. Now, in Manitoba, for a time, we had the private provision and queue jumping uh, in cataract surgeries and the ability for doctors to work in both sectors. What happened was that waiting times were the shortest for the private pay patients, about four weeks, the people who just paid the money and a couple grand to get to the front of the line. The waiting times were higher for services provided by surgeons who practiced only in the public sector, 10 weeks, but they were highest of all for publicly financed services provided by surgeons who, pr who practiced in both sectors, those wait times were 23 weeks. Now, if that's not enough numbers yeah. for you, we've got examples already of tinkering with privatization in Alberta. In Alberta, we deliver hip and knee replacement surgeries privately through the Health Resources Group in Calgary. This was the bone of contention, as you, <laughs> if you will, um, with Bill 11. The result, those surgeries are 10% more expensive than the exact same surgeries delivered publicly in Edmonton. In Calgary, eye cataract surgeries are delivered almost 100% within the private system, with the exception of a few in the children's hospital, I think four out of several hundred per, per 90 day period. The wait times in Calgary are three times longer than what they are in Edmonton, where they are delivered almost 100% within the public system. And not surprisingly, they are delivered in the public system through an innovation like or that is a specialized clinic that is probably a good idea for hips and knees mm -hmm. as well. The Royal Alex Eye Surgery Clinic is within the public system. It handles three times as many patients in a 90-day period as the largest facility in Calgary, which is the Gimbal Eye Center, and its wait times are a third as long. One of the big reasons why the Gimbal Eye Center has such long wait <coughs> times is because it takes cosmetic surgery, 
and the laser surgery if you can pay before the patients that are paid for through the public system. They'll take the private patients first for the things that are outside of what's deemed medically necessary or the Canada Health Act. And I'll just leave you with the last kind of example, and it comes from New Zealand, because they allowed the cataract eye surgery to be in both systems in New Zealand. Now, in 1997, the New Zealand government, when they allowed these doctors to be in both systems and private health insurance for eye cataract surgeries, the government took steps to alleviate the long wait times that were the inevitable result of the two-tier system. Now, what they did was they tried to bring in ophthalmologists from Australia to clear up the backlog. What the New Zealand Society of Ophthalmologists, who had an economic interest in having for-profit or paying customers, did was they tried to hinder the Australian doctors' entry into the country. They were taken to court under New Zealand's competition legislation. And the New Zealand ophthalmologists were found guilty of trying to impede the entry of Australian surgeons who were brought in to help the public system because, and the judgment said this, that these people were trying to protect their profits, and lessening public wait times would, in fact, erode their profits. Why? Because a public wait list is what creates the market. Thank you. 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 Thank you